The Lab takes the ethereal to the practical. Our podcast acts like a business school case study for private equity professionals, CEOs, operating partners, and chief transformational officers. We all know transformation is the key to differentiated alpha. Here's how you actually do it. Our audience tunes in to learn from those in the field, getting their fingernails dirty and driving meaningful growth through better operations, technology, and data. We learn from going to business school, teaching at business schools, and applying these lessons in the real world that case studies actually help the insight stick better. Come join us. All right, welcome to another episode of The Lab. You've got Sean Mooney and Scott Estill. You've got Nick as well. We're, we're all here talking about our favorite topic, which is value creation. Sean I've been a private equity professional for all, you know, close to 20 years. We'll, we'll get into his background. And like all of us, we're trying to solve that equation of how do you get better returns faster? How do you work within the private equity ecosystem and do that? And one of the things where we sort of have similar beliefs around was, you know, financial engineering used to be good enough to get you a pretty solid return combined with, you know, sort of multiple arbitrage. You've got a double dip there. That's always helpful. Those have become less and less sort of differentiated in the value creation curve. And it's really about operational improvement, value creation. So, you know, something that we're all sort of trying to solve, and maybe we'll let Sean give the quick background of how he got, you know, the problems that he's trying to solve, and then how we can dip into collectively trying to get to the better answer faster. That sounds great. Scott and Nick, great here to be with you today. Yeah, my, my tale is kind of a twisted, very atypical tale, in at least the world of PE. So, as you can imagine, I was the the classic kind of try hard kid, and you know, <laughs> you know, collected ribbons and badges, and was on this kind of like hamster wheel, and you know, certainly had you know thousands of imperfections along the way. But I got into investment banking, and investment banking got me into into this weird industry called private equity. And I started in the late '90s and got into this thing, and it was kind of an industry there then, but not really. And I, I started looking at this and I go, wow, we get to pick from a hundred different companies and they kind of are in line for us and we can set the terms and then we're going to buy an imperfect company at a more than fair price. And then we're going to do some value creation, but then we're going to sell it efficiently through our investment banker friends and get this arbitrage. And and it, two things, I thought, wow, I'm really smart. I'm a master of the universe. I see the world in slow motion. That's <laughs> clearly not the case. But then what I also saw was, it, this is not going to last. And and wow, I wish I was 10 years older. Because <laughs> so, like the, the, the guys that I work for were going to do really well. I was like, I don't know if this is going to last all the way through. And as the industry evolved, certainly capital I saw was was agile. And it flooded into private equity. And, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of firms became multiple thousands, hundreds of billions of dry capital. And as I mapped my career forward in PE, suddenly I was one of 100 PE firms trying to go for one asset. And the whole dynamic changed. And we realized we had to do a lot of different things. Did you guys see kind of similar things over that time? Yeah, I mean, listen, that's what we started this firm around is I spent, like you, 17 years in banking. I, I I sadly took me longer to figure out things, so I, I st- stayed longer in that industry. We love bankers, but you know, whatever. But the problem was same thing. It, you got two companies, same industry. One's a five bagger, one's a zero. Why? The model's giving the same returns, and if you do the regression on that, it's around sort of that value creation. And our version of value creation is finding the right operators 
to look critically at an asset before you buy it, determine what the levers for growth that are most efficient can be pulled using the experience of historic muscle memory and scar tissue to develop that investment thesis and combining that with the private equity professionals. And so you're right, it's what used to be quote unquote easy, which is the financial engineering. Everyone went to the same business schools. Everyone figured out how to do that. And there wasn't anything as differentiated. So to your point, you got to evolve or you're going to suffer a lower return threshold. So that's totally the short answer is absolutely. And so you know, maybe get into what you've done to sort of say, listen, I solving it is a grand plan, but mitigating the risk can be helpful. Yeah. And, and, and I think those points are absolutely on par and, 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 and jive with exactly what I saw during the, during my career through private equity. And that was the thing that I felt most. He said, as I needed value creation, I needed alpha. I could no longer rely on beta or I'm buying with the market. I had to see things that other people couldn't see when I'm in a 150 private equity person auction. And, and really the, the, the evolution for me was we needed not only internal skills, but we needed really, really excellent external skills. And the challenge that I faced was every company was different. And because every company was different, a lot of times I needed something different to help me find that alpha or someone different to help me find that alpha. And I could go, I realized I could go to Amazon for consumer products and Yelp for restaurants and Angie's List for my house, but nowhere for these top of the pyramid business needs where you're really solving multivariable equations. And at that time I was co-leading our information data and analytics practice and I said, well, there's these market network concepts that can solve this problem where you're bringing these fragmented needs and fragmented skills that too, so too often were boats passing in the night. And so I, like, I knew a lot of times that people could help me. I just didn't know where or why or when because there's just so much in my head. And I felt like I had fires around me at all times. And it, it clicked to me when one of my buddies who was a service provider in the private equity ecosystem he came to me and he goes, John, you're on fire. You're always on fire. And I sell fire extinguishers, but you're too busy to even pick up my phone unless I randomly call you at the, the exact time that my fire extinguisher puts out the fires that are burning your ankles at that exact time. I go, you're right. And this is a guy I went to college with. And so I was like, and I, and I couldn't take his call. And it's, and it's not that I didn't want to, it's just, I was overwhelmed. And I said, what if we created this ecosystem where you could bring really good together with really good at the exact time they need to know each other in a situation rooted in their successes? And that's what led to this kind of idealistic idea. I tried to start it within the firm that I was in multiple times, but I didn't have enough volume. So you need a lot of volume to fill the, the expertise. And so that's what led me on to, to Blue Wave. And originally I was going to back it. And because that's what we did. Right. And that's the safer choice. And then I had this kind of like Ratatouille moment. I don't remember that movie, you know, with the, you know, the, the restaurant critic remembers what it's like to be a kid. And I remember as a kid, I always thought I was gonna be like my dad, who was an entrepreneur. And then I realized that this was the only good idea I've ever had in 40 something years. And so <laughs> I was like, I was either going to do this or I'm going to wait till 80. Cause there's not, there's nothing else coming out of this noggin here. And so that's what led to it. And, you know, and we can talk about the trend since then, but that was kind of like the origin story of this, this crazy machine. And today it, there's more than today, there's, you know, more than 500 private equity firms that are using this engine in a large number of the, the world's best of the best, 
service providers who are truly excellent at what they do. And our job's really simple. You bring them together when they need to know each other in this kind of karma school of business. So does that kind of resonate? It did. And I think that's what we were excited to talk to you about is, and, and maybe you know, we can think through what are some of the trends you're seeing? Like you were smart enough to build this and we're all trying to create some value. But if you were you know, running a business or you were running a PE firm, because they're, you know, the, the same problems trying to be solved, different side of the coin. What are some trends that you're seeing in terms of where they can get the most value and what are the, the big things they're trying to solve today? Because it changes over time. Yeah, the big trend that, that you all will appreciate as much as anyone is value creation. And private equity firms are doing more and more and more every year. And then we'll talk about the subsets below that. But the reason why they're doing more is Economics 101. Every year, there's more capital chasing a relatively static supply of companies available for investment, which is causing purchase prices to go up and returns to go down. And I felt that palpably every year, every day in private equity when I was in it. But the beauty of private equity is they're incredibly tenacious, very clever, and in many ways, and innovative in how they how they respond to challenge. And so the response is like, well, we're not just going to let returns go down. We're going to build more value. And so every year, certainly when I was in the industry, I felt that. So they building operating teams, building, you know, working with really excellent third parties to do more because you know, when I started in PE, it was like, we're going to do the kitchens and bathrooms today. They're redoing the whole house. It's like, and so every trend is up and to the right in terms of not just doing like I used to do the accounting system and add a salesperson. It's we're going to upgrade the entire sales team. We're going to do marketing. We're going to do operational effectiveness. And the number one trend of trends is human capital. It's it, you know, and, and this would be good to dive into, but just looking at the demand patterns in 2018, 17, 18 percent of the project demands that came into Blue Wave were human capital. In 2022 and even through 2023, notwithstanding the economy, more than 40 percent of the projects are human capital. And that's because people, you know, private equity firms have to transform these companies. And they have very specific skill sets that are required to do that. And so, Scott, I'm sure you're getting you know, lots of demand based on the unique things that you all do. There's always been a need to improve management. And I think during a time when M&A is robust, you need management teams because you're, you, know, you can't get the, the numbers to take and tie or you know, the CFO is the most common search. Now, when the, the market has a temporary uh, you know, slowdown, you're not seeing 120 books a month, but you're seeing 80. You're, it's, still, it's still busy, but not as crazy. The private equity firms can now focus on improving the talent because you can't. it's not masked underneath a rising tide raising all ships. So you can see really where the, the problems arise. The problem is talent's squishy. It's not easy to stick into an Excel spreadsheet. And so it's hard to drive the, the MOIC or the IRR or whatever you want to do around people, but it's certainly there and certainly an increasing trend, both in busy markets and non-busy markets. Yep. And, and what I would say, if you, if you drill down through that, you know, if you look at the, at the PE needs, it's, it's, not only, it's not only within the portfolio companies themselves, it's within the PE firms themselves. And, and so we're seeing, and I'm sure, Scott, within your practice with the operating partners, 
we're seeing them hire more and more and more people within those teams to address it. Yeah, that's right. I think it's, you know, most of the, and this is meant to sound, be, be respectful, but most of the PE firms are filled with finance nerds like you and me and Nick and, and not as, not necessarily the operating folks, right? And so, you know, we've done 40 or 50 operating partners the last four or five years, and even that's changed. Used to be, you're my healthcare person, you're my consumer person. Then it was, I need to go to market and SEO. Now it's, you know, there's a whole variety, and that spawns chief transformation officers that are put inside of a portfolio company. A, to be cynical, it's cheaper for the PE firm because that person's inside the portfolio company, and then they sort of dotted line report back to operating partners. So there's lots of ways to try and focus on we need to improve this company. And that starts with not just the CEO and not just the C-suite. You know, sometimes you're a layer or two down, head of FP&A. Like, how do you go sort of windshield review, not just windshield, you know, sort of rearview mirror review? How do you be thoughtful about being strategic? So all that is absolutely correct from our perspective. Yep. And then I think that makes a ton of sense. And the, I love that one thing you pointed about going lower, and that's definitely one thing that we've seen within, you know, the really top private equity firms is they're getting involved hiring much deeper into the organizations. They still very much are involved with the C-suite hires, but we're seeing a lot more demand for the head of FP&A, the controller, the sales manager versus the chief sales officer. And so I think that's a, that's a really important trend to, to point out. You know, from my perspective, we're, we're obviously talking human capital. I think it's super important. Every operating partner. I joined Resourcev in 2017, so a year after you launched Blue Wave, right? And even from my, you asked our backgrounds and what we see. I mean, back in 2008 to 2016, I was in the military, so I, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. So my whole lens was kind of molded with the operating partners that were leaning into value creation in 2017. And I would hit a lot of roadblocks going to either emerging operating partner teams or kind of junior folks that were just tasked to drive value creation before it was even called value creation. Maybe it was procurement initiatives or whatever. But now, fast forward six to seven years, the best firms have a buttoned up point of attack. They know exactly what to do. They have their players in their playbook. So we talk trends at a high level from a services perspective and human capital touches that. I'm sure IT and et cetera. From a, from a team development at these PE firms where you are supporting them, what does that look like? Because again, to me, yes, there's been an influx of operating partners, but just it seems like there's a mindset shift and a bit more of a willingness to lean into that outside procurement. Yeah, no, a, a thousand percent. And so what we're seeing from the, the private equity firms is you're right. In the early days, there might be an A operating partner within the firm. Now there's a team, even within lower middle market firms. And everyone's, you know, I always think about when I was in private equity, I was like at a craps table where I, I only had so many chips and I could put them in different places on the, on the board, but I could never cover the whole board, nor should I, right? That wouldn't be a good play, right? <laughs> and, and P firms the same way. And so each firm is configuring where they're placing their, their resources that are finite, right? 2% doesn't cover that much. If you think about even a, a billion dollar fund, you put 2% times a billion, that's a small revenue company. And so they have to use really, really good third parties 
Otherwise, they're not going to be able to accomplish their goals. And so every firm kind of accomplishes what they do internally differently. So that, that aligns with their strategy. And then they, they'll use the best in class third parties like you all elsewhere. And then what happens is your point is like when I came, it was kind of like the deal team would throw the model in the lap of the operating partner and they go, dear God, what have you done? And that was when, and they, that was my former operating partner saying, Sean, what have you done? And so I was like, that model is, there's, there's no way that's true. I'm like, well, it looks good on paper. Good luck. You know, have fun in China. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, he'll know what that means. And so, so, so now what we see is this kind of, it used to be kind of a one or two note song. Now it's this simple symphony of motion between the internal deal teams, the internal op teams, the external third parties, and they're all working together to transform the company. And it starts in value creation where they need to see something that no one else sees in that book that's going to 150 other private equity firms. And so value creation is, is evolving or diligence is evolving really into value creation. It's not just trust, but verify. It can't be. You're not going to overcome Econ 101. And so you need alpha. And so you're bringing in you know, senior executives to help you have a unique perspective on it. You're bringing in resource groups that can understand what are our costs going to be? What kind of costs can we take out before we even buy this business that always should have been there? And then you're seeing, you know, within all of this, you know, before they even invest, they know what they're going to do day one. And then they kick off value creation before they buy. Then it's no longer just, like I said, lift, lift revenue a little bit. It's we are going to lift revenue. We are going to optimize costs. We're going to get the right people in place. We're going to get the right tech in place. We're going to change our strategy. And that's how they overcome Econ 101. And what the result of that is, is you get this tremendous amount of value creation. And the private equity industry has evolved to be one of the biggest job creators in the industry versus maybe some of these dated notions from you know 1980s movies. And then when you're talking, when you're bridging that gap from due diligence to value creation, are you guys doing the, the due diligence in-house? Or are you finding the, the right fit there as well? I'd love to know that because like you said, almost every operating partner I'm talking to, they're getting the thesis. They're making, they already know what they're doing the first hundred days for sure. And then really probably even the first six months. So their value creation is kind of forecasted out. I'd imagine the quicker you can get eyes on, the quicker you can recommend the players that can impact. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting the way it works. And so the way it works is a private equity fund, a, a public company, a portfolio company, independent company, they call us. And then we'll do a scoping call to understand the exact nature of all of their needs that results in a pretty detailed scorecard that helps us kind of calibrate that. And then we feed that into the systems we have. And now it's, it's, in, it's really, really kind of amazing the, the AI technologies we have. And I know that's a crazy buzzword. And, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we haven't been building for years because it have not been available, but we started building in the summer of last year and how quickly it's improved. What we're doing is pretty, pretty striking. But, you know, going back to this idea that every private equity firm is different, you know, you've seen one PE firm, you've seen one PE firm for diligence. Rarely do we get the same need from this, you know, across the same deal that's in the market. It's almost always one firm will call us for, oh, we got a, we have a tech thing. Another firm will say, hey, we got to look at the Lean Six Sigma approaches, procurement. How can we take out you know, costs, make them more efficient and how they buy because of inflation? Another person will call us and say, hey, we need someone who can connect us with a senior advisor. You know, another firm will call us on that we got to do a market study. And so you get everyone has you know, this 
different mix of what they do internally and externally. And so the, it's, it's, it's amazing how these needs come in differently for each kind of project or underway, you know, across a large population of PE firms. I was up in Boston to end of last week, met with a bunch of PE firms. One of the consistent things that they were asking about was, hey, what are the trends that you guys are seeing with AI broadly defined, right? And so, because the operating partners are saying, it's sort of like digital transformation. We know what that is, but I don't really know what that is. I know I'm supposed to do it. How? Do, so how, the questions they were asking us is, how do we think about bringing best practices around AI to our portfolio companies, some of which are in the tech spe- sector, some of which are consumer, some are healthcare, some industrial, and how do we bring those? So I'm wondering if, if that's a thread that you're pulling on a bunch for different PE firms. Are there other ones that are just sort of, you know, newer trends in terms of value creation? Yeah, AI is, you know, the buzz of buzzwords in, in my, in my, so like even further data myself here, at least I won't date you, Scott, <laughs> is, you know, th- this is a lot like 1995 when Mosaic and Netscape were, you know, kind of introduced the internet to the world. And everyone said, internet is my strategy. And you go, no, internet's not a strategy. Internet's a tactic. And it's the same thing right now. People think AI is their strategy. It's not. It's a tactic that's going to unleash tremendous amounts of efficiency in ways that the world has never seen, particularly in the professional layer of of the workforce. And so this will be probably, if you look back in time, one of the first times that kind of white collar jobs were meaningfully impacted by this revolutionary change in how the world approaches things. And so, you know, what that means is you got to get ready. And so there's probably, I don't think a week goes by where I don't have a conversation with a managing partner of a P firm saying, what are you all seeing? And the first thing I, I, we talk about is, well, the first thing you need to do either you're both at your company, the private equity firm and the portfolio companies is get your data clean. You can't do anything until you do that. And no one wants to do that because it's the unfun part. But, you know, the, you know, I used to invest in a lot of data businesses and, and the old line we had was the only thing worse than no data is bad data. And so no one wants to do that hard stuff. But once you do that, then the next thing you do is visualize it. And so we have private equity firms that are now racing across their portfolio companies to bring in data and analytical visualization approaches using things like Snowflake and Power BI and Tableau, because that'll then point to where you need to then do the analytics. And then you can do kind of the really cool data science and, you know, kind of large language models and, and multivariable regressions and gradient rooted trees and all these type of things. But until you go get the basics down, you're not going to do the cool stuff, but the cool stuff is coming really quick. So I think everyone is kind of feverishly running fast so they can use these tools and it's going to impact every company in the world, you know, in starting with, you know, basics, right? It's great at content generation. Your marketing team should be using it right now to help you write better content. It's great at doing drip emails. It's great at saying like, oh, how should I do a LinkedIn post? Those are things. It's great at painting pictures that you can use in your marketing collateral. So those are the things that every company can and should do right now. Yeah, one of the things that we've talked about, uh, you and I, is using the you know, the great abilities that AI have within marketing and how do you do it consistently and how are you actually measuring? One of the things that's so frustrating about marketing to the uninitiated is I don't actually know if I'm getting a return. 
But now it's becoming easier and easier with the data, to your point, to measure that. And, and maybe that's, you know, it's one of the trends that we've seen when we've hired operating partners that have a bent towards understanding how to bring that to bear on behalf of the portfolio companies. So, you know, if you, t- you know, consultants are very smart. And so, you know, but th- th- they can say anything they want and they can, how do you determine if consultant advice A is better than consultant advice B? In which path are you going to go down? And unless you've got someone who's been in the weeds in this sort of digital world, they're not going to be able to put a business sense to what seems like a good idea. And it sounds like you're seeing that trend as much as we are. Yeah, I think a, a thousand percent. And, and the way that, that we do it, it's really kind of an evolution and an enhancement on the way that I did it. And, you know, I think a lot of things, if you think about maybe VC versus, versus PE, VC is really good at the top line. PE is really good at like the operational effectiveness and this whole scorecarding approach that the world has done. And so the way that we really do it and the way we do kind of everything here, even though whether we're hiring someone externally, we're doing things for ourselves or doing things from our clients is we scorecard it. And it's, and I, you know, and it drives my wife nuts because I like scorecard our life, but it's this whole idea of like, what's important to you, put it on paper and then measure against that. And if you do that, the decisions are so much clearer and it certainly works on the human capital side. I'm just curious what your wife's scorecard is for you, but maybe that's not- <laughs> it's a zero. <laughs> no, there might be like one out of a hundred. All right. At least there's a, there's hope. Hope is the last thing left in Pandora's box. I have nowhere to go, but up. <laughs> there you go. It's good. What's next for you guys? I mean, I know we just touched on AI. It sounds like you're leaning into that, but like, a firm like you guys, one of the things I'm impressed about from afar looking out is like you're always adding, you're always building, you're always kind of peeking around because you want to be that SME for the SMEs in a lot of cases. What do you see in the next 12 to 24 months that you're excited about Blue Wave? So, I mean, yeah, it's it's it, it, it's that probably in that neurotic kind of like chasing you know a, a, a goal or trying to climb a hill that you can never get to and and that's certainly here i think we brought in people that really embrace change and so we give four books out to people every time they join here and one of them is this great book called who moved my cheese where it's just the whole world changes constantly and you can either change with it and go find that cheese when they move it in a different place in the maze or you can get upset and keep on going back to the same place and, and then you lose out. And it's just this great, you know, 30 page book. It's a peril about life. And so that's what we absolutely try to do. So we're doing things today that we don't think will be a thing until three years from now. And so the, the big thing, obviously, that we're focused on is, is the AI. And we've been doing that. And it's interesting, like we, we were pretty cutting edge when we started, if you can believe that, you know, in this, you know August of last year. And we've, we're building these engines that work really well, but we're already tearing down half of it because the new tools are already even better. And I guarantee you, a year from now, we're going to tear down another half of it. But we're learning and we're keeping parts of it that work better. And so you're going to see more of that, but you're not going to see us take the humanity out of it. And so that was something when we started Blue Wave, it was going to be a self-serve platform and you do it yourself and blah, blah, blah. And we heard very clearly, like, no, I don't want to type things into your page. And so for us, we try to use the word and versus or. And so we're, we're going to do the AI, but we're also going to have the people. We're going to have the data. We're going to have that, that kind of four seasons feel when you come into it as well. And so you'll see more of that, but you'll see us become more of a cyborg where, you know, it's going to be people 
and data and technology kind of working in harmony to get a greater whole. And that will probably drive a lot of people, you know, crazy when they, you know, look at investing us in future days or whatnot, because they're going to say like, why do you have people? And it's like, well, because we had the audacity to ask the customers what they wanted. And they said, we want people. <laughs> so, okay. Which caused me to have a heart attack six and a half years ago. And so, like, no, no, we can't have people. I don't know. I'm not good with people. Well, listen, I think it's, it's been, what you've done is great. We, we've enjoyed We've heard from third parties, different P firms we're working with that what you guys are doing is creating a lot of value. So, you know, congratulations. The many you think you're great is the many you're in trouble, right? So there's always a lot of improvement. We certainly feel that way. But it's been great to sort of see you guys grow and, you know, with Nick and myself all doing our own sort of, you know, little uh, value add creation within the greater ecosystem of PE. It's been fun to watch you. So and appreciate you joining us on the and the podcast and, you know, looking forward to doing this again, where we can just see where we've grown from where we are, which I imagine will be like everything we're trying to do in the top right and continuing to move in that direction. Uh, and, and absolutely. And I, I similarly appreciate both of you all and, and both of your firms are in our kind of ecosystem of the really best of the best. And, and so we've appreciated the opportunity to work with, with each of your firms and, and see how you all do really good things within the PE ecosystem. Thanks, Sean. Hope you guys enjoyed that. It's always nice to get, I mean, look, we're talking value creation every single time we're talking to anyone on these podcasts, right? It's the point, but it's nice to have a perspective of a guy who was at a PE firm, saw a need and believed in it so wholeheartedly that he said, I'm leaving and I'm going to start something on my own that is going to basically address all the various spends and areas where he can impact. So I really appreciated Sean's Sean's background, his perspective, and you guys go back 20 years. So I'm sure it's it's pretty cool from you to see what he's built over the last seven years at this point. Yeah, it's fun. I think that's the the, the advantage of, you know, being around the block. You get to see innovative folks that not just talk about value creation, but really have a burning desire, as you said, to solve a problem. And I think that's what we see with, you know, executives anyway. Every deal that we're working on, that we're co-investing in with private equity firms, you want someone to have an insatiable appetite to create value, right? And so it's nice that he's done that. You know, what you, you're doing, what we're all trying to do is just, you know, listen, do, keeping things as they are in the status quo still makes a lot of money, right? It still creates a lot of value for unlimited partners. It's just less sustainable. And how do you, you got to keep innovating. Otherwise, you just run out of you know your ability to create value. So it's fun to have seen him do that. It's you're right. It's kind of neat, and there's a lot of folks that are doing it. And so that's why I like to have him on the podcast, where you and I can explore and hopefully help folks create value in their own portfolio companies in a more efficient manner. Yeah. When you're play, I mean, you talk about over the last couple of years placing dozens of, of operating partners. Value creation is obviously top of mind for most. Have you seen that shift over the last couple of years, or is that something that as far back as you can remember, it's just kind of table stakes? I'm, I'm always interested in that because I'm getting to these folks. Once they're placed and they're building out their teams and their playbooks, you're getting to them in the beginning, right? Like a lot of times it may be their first operating partner gig. So are you, are you, do they have a, a view of how they see value creation or – is it pretty well molded just because it's the industry now? Well, I think, you know, 
there used to be, there wasn't that big of a pool of people, their operating partners, right? You had to take someone that had a background in consulting, then flipped into a company and then drove real value and then wants to do it in a portfolio approach as opposed to within one asset. The industry has been around long enough now that we are working with folks that were an operating partner at firm A, want to take what they learned from A and move it to B. So the quote-unquote lateral hire is more and more common within operating partners. And so that's one to answer your question. And two, the way they create value is different, right? So it is as the firms get bigger and they raise their second fund and their third fund and they have to go to the limited partners and say, hey, you gave us 100 million bucks, give us 150. Why? Well, we hired a person A and B and C to help us with our portfolio companies and being operating partners are going to drive more consistent value and therefore we're staying ahead of the curve. Because in limited partners, again, smarter, they used to say, you bought these 10 portfolio companies, good for you that they you know, had a 2x, 3x return. Why? Did you just simply pay the last eighth of a turn of EBITDA and a, 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 a sort of an auction and got successful? What did you not buy? What did you decide? How did you sort of meander through the art of the possible? And how did you use operations to see around corners? So I think that's also driving the evolution of operating partners and the need for them to convince, cajole, cajole entice, encourage, not just grab you by the throat and make you do it as a CEO could, right? So that sort of element is more and more common. So the evolution has gotten to a point where it's not a nice to have, it's a real need to have if you want to be differentiated. Beautiful. All right. Well, look, I mean, look, we're our, the whole goal of this podcast is to be looking around corners, right? For the people that are already trying to do it. So hopefully you guys glean a little bit of different perspective yet again with, with another great guest. And we have a couple more teed up, you know, believe it or not, it's hard to get on these folks calendars. They seem to be busy. So, you know, we have a nice little op tempo here every four to six weeks. We'll, we'll drop a new episode. Appreciate you guys listening.